Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Cult Faves. I'm Cher. And I'm Gwenda. And we have a cult problem. (laughs) America has a cult problem. The world has a cult problem. I feel like that's accurate. It is accurate. (laughs) Because I feel like the more we do this and the more we think about, like, what defines a cult, I think a lot of things fall in their own way underneath. Agreed. Yeah. I see them everywhere now. Um, so you have something that you were very excited about. I do. Yeah. To share today. <laughs> Sorry. I'm like very late on small talk. It's been, it's been, a, been a week. Year. Yeah. <laughs> Cher had New York Comic Con and she has a sick puppy. So yeah, not good. Not good. Me. I had hobby edits and, um, I went to the circus last night, which was amazing. So if what I have circus a cult, did you go to? Uh, it's the Venardo Circus. It's relatively new. It's a guy that used to be a Ringling Brothers ringmaster, and he basically has formed up a small classic circus with no animal acts. It's like my dream circus. It was great. Oh, awesome. Yeah, it was great. That's what I've been up to. And also, uh, I was... So I I occasionally will wander through the library, occasionally, at least once a week, um, will wander through the library, and especially if it is sick hot like it has been, in this weird random like today is the first day of fall here that actually feels like fall mm-hmm. it's been like 90 degrees so i will walk to the library to like pick up holds and take my books and i will linger if it's super hot because <laughs> they have air conditioning <laughs> for a few minutes and so i was looking around and there was a book on hoaxes and so I took it out and I was just kind of flipping through because most of them I was familiar with already. It's just kind of like a little survey of hoaxes. But then uh, there was an article on hollow earth beliefs. And I started uh, reading that section and came across a cult that I had never heard of before. And so I was like, ooh, what's this? It's midnight, but I need to go hit Google right away. <laughs> and so this, there was a guy named Cyrus Teed and he founded uh, something known as the Koreshian Unity pretty quickly. And, and there's some stuff online about these guys, and you'll, you'll know why as we talk about them. Um, but not nearly as much. But I found that there was a recent book that had been published that had gotten really good reviews. And there actually are a ton of their papers and archives and documents available about them. As we will discuss, they were heavily covered in the newspapers of the time, um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they were covered by the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, the San Francisco Chronicle, a ton. Um, and yet they were completely new to me, at least. So Florida, the state of Florida, actually has a historic site with some of their property. And so they have all their papers. And this woman wrote Lynn Milner, which is what where most of the information I'm going to share today comes from wrote this book called The Allure of Immortality, an American cult, a Florida swamp, and a renegade prophet about these guys. And also it feels like slightly timely because as we were saying, it turns out everything connects back to a cult. I know, it's Um, crazy. You know, so we saw those, you know, that the climate deniers, you know, are still out there, including our president. Meanwhile, we have this new report basically saying we're going to have like the effects of you know, climate change are going to be extreme much faster because that's the kind of news we need right now. Yeah, something uh, <laughs> like, in, like in 20 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. in 20 years. Um, and so, like, to me, there's a... Shooting heroin into my eyeballs now. <laughs> Don't, do Don't do that. Don't do that. 
you're gonna go live in Costa Rica with Deals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've always uh, wanted to go to Costa Rica. <laughs> so it feels to me like um, there's a parallel little bit there of these guys had these wacky environmental beliefs. Um, you know, they they part of their shtick, which we'll go through, which is elaborate and very interesting. But one of the things this guy believed was that we live inside the earth and like the continents are on like the concave part inside and their slogan was we live inside <laughs> what this was a part of the message that they needed to preach and um you know i mean it just, just goes That's to actually show crazier than flat earth truthers <laughs> yeah well he actually there was a flat earth guy that he ended up in like this scientific competition with as they both tried to prove their theories what? Um, i'm telling you this is this this is magical all of this so uh they were covered by all these people he had ties to all these famous people um, of the day, at least like very small in most cases, but still um, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, Marjorie Stone Douglas, Victoria I mean, those Woodhull. Those no. are not small names. No. Upton, Sinclair, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Presidents McKinley and Teddy Roosevelt, the painter Paul Sargent and the millionaire Marshall Field. Oh God, the so author nice. of this book, Lynn Milner, says that his story because of this has a Forrest Gump quality. <laughs> Which I love. Oh my god. <laughs> um, so this guy, Cyrus Steed, was born in eighteen thirty-nine in New York. He worked um as on the Erie Canal as uh somebody who was like a young these young, I guess like preteen and teen boys would work as dock workers or hoggies, um, herding animals into boats and along the Erie Canal. So the theory is that he was exposed to all sorts of things, even though he sort of grew up in a small town. He decided he wanted to be a doctor. And then the Civil War happens. So he signs up like everyone else. And he ended up being a medic, even though he wasn't trained as a doctor yet. He got injured due to sunstroke and suffered paralysis of his left leg. But he got discharged once he got better because he wasn't able to fight anymore, basically. So he goes to this medical college, which I had never heard of. And <laughs> don't you love it when you typo a year that's wrong? Because I'm like, <laughs> it says he graduated second in his medical school class at the Eclectic Medical College in New York City. And I put 1968, but I'm pretty sure it's 1868. Um, so It's also a hell of a name for a school. Oh, well, so I had never heard of this. So eclectics were essentially, I'm kind of thinking of them as like the... Um, the doctors of os the osteopathic uh, doctors of their day, they were kind of medical reformers um, and the orthodox doctors were sort of the mainstream. And they, you know, just like uh, with what we have today, like the, the regular doctors were like, nah, they're kind of quacks or whatever, even though that's an oversimplification. And at this point, both, both of these, types of doctors believe some crazy shit and we're doing like things that were not necessarily all that medically sound. So he was an eclectic. He graduates and he goes home to work with his uncle in Utica, but he's also doing weirdo experiments with alchemy and shit like that in a home lab that he has that he's built because he's very interested in mystical ideas and like Swedenborg was stuff was starting to become popular here. And he had grown up in this time, you know, when there were lots of utopias and, 
you know, spiritualism was still kind of in the air and all, all these sorts of weird ideas that people were, you know, trying to understand the natural world with sort of these mystical beliefs. But he takes it to a new extreme. So in late October 1869, he's in, and if he was, obviously if he was Anton LaVey, he would have made this be on a special day like Halloween, but <laughs> it's not. He is in his home lab by himself. Oh, I forgot to mention, he's married at this point. He got married to a 16-year-old cousin. I guess it was sort of a de facto arranged marriage. I mean, I guess back then. <laughs> I wish people could see the reaction that I, I know. just had. I know. So just so, just so well, everybody knows what's like, I want to give you guys an image of what's happening right now. So Gwen is reading this. I'm listening, but I keep like dipping so she can't see me anymore because we're we're on Skype because obviously I, I we don't live yeah. in the same place. So and my dog that's sick is laying down at my feet. So I keep you know bending over to pet him and comfort him, and then. But I'm listening to her, and then all of a sudden she just says this about being married to a 16 year old, and I popped up like a meerkat. It was like I mean, he wasn't he wasn't that much older at the time, and but you know, I mean, this was the 1800s. There are still states sure, they where used that's to have, legal. They used to marry people off at like 13. Absolutely, my my at least one one set of my grandparents got married later, but the more uneducated part of my family got married at like 14. Like you know, I mean, it just yeah. It's a thing. So at any rate, this cousin, Delia, he's married to, is sleeping upstairs. He's in his lab by himself, and he has this experience that would change everything that was to, to follow. First, as one, as one does. <laughs> first, he claimed he turned lead into gold. Um, oh. You know, as you do. Finally unlock the secrets of alchemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, well done. And so then, because he's done this, an angel appears to him. And she says, I have been with you through many lifetimes waiting for you to get your shit together and achieve this level of being able to, like, get out of your own way and all the other things that had prevented him from being mm-hmm. able to turn mm-hmm. lead into gold. Normal. And Go ahead. now he can complete his mission. She can give him his ultimate destiny. She told him, thou art chosen to redeem the race. And that he would have followers and that he would eventually die and his followers would achieve immortality on earth. Um, he would also get, even though remember, he's already married to this woman, Delia, a woman of his equal who the angel eventually, uh, would inhabit and would give like sort of be the, the divine motherhood. He goes upstairs and goes to bed. I guess, you know, you're like, okay. Well, that's uh, exhausting I need to sleep on this. Yeah. I, need, <laughs> I need to sleep on this. And he starts hearing these really loud rumbling noises. And basically, it's a flying chariot outside that he decides he's hearing. Of course it is. And he gets the secrets of immortality. Right. Um, now, she also told him that he would be... He would be in the shadow and he would have a difficult time convincing people of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, setting up that it would not necessarily go over with immediately with everyone that he met. Mm-hmm. So he comes up with this Koreshanity. Um, he wanted to sort of marry mysticism, religion and science, um, which was something that people were really interested in doing at that time. Mm-hmm. He himself is five six about 140 pounds at some points he has a beard at some points he doesn't 
everybody kept making making notes throughout the book and newspapers and such about his piercing eyes and how hypnotic they were when he would give speeches and stuff. The author of this book says it's basically, she seems to be a little bit juries out on whether he was a true believer or grifter. I'm going to come down on the side of, uh, of grifter who might have believed some crazy shit, but we'll see what you think when we get to the end. So he comes up with these crazy ideas about how he's supposed to, you know, make people develop these followers and make people immortal. And, uh, he starts, this is probably actually my favorite part of this story, even though it's not the weirdest part, because it just cracks me up. But so he's trying to establish a medical practice, right? He's trying to be a doctor, and he already has one strike against him, and that he's this from this eclectic school. So he starts talking this stuff up to his patients. <laughs> And you can imagine how well that goes over. Mm-hmm. Um, he has to become a traveling doctor, and that still doesn't work out because he's still talking. Wait, he about has this stuff. to become so basically. If somebody became a traveling doctor, is because like they couldn't stay and be a doctor where they were a doctor. Probably, yeah. yeah. Really? I mean, maybe there were other reasons, but scandalous. But yeah, so he starts traveling, but it still doesn't pan out very much because, you know, you're kind of like traveling through the same region. And once people had heard this, they're like, I don't want to go to the crazy doctor (laughs) who thinks we live inside. So he's not doing well financially. His wife, Delia, has TB that she's gotten at some point during all of this. And they have a now teenage son named Arthur by this point. Mm-hmm. He meets a friend who becomes um, his first real, like, kind of deep friend who eventually gets involved in Christianity, but is, I would say, like, it seems to be kind of a stabilizing influence as much as one could be on this guy. But he was constantly loaning him money. He was a successful doctor. And mm-hmm. they basically had this kind of, like, friendship of ideals um, where they would write each other letters and sit up late talking about metaphysical stuff. So, um, at this point, Teed sets up shop in Sandy Creek, New York, where he doesn't know anybody, hoping that he can get a medical practice going there. So, let's talk about some of the things that he might have been telling patients that scared them off. He believed he was the Old Testament prophet Cyrus. Um, Guess what? He was also a distant cousin of Emma Hale, Joseph Smith's wife. Oh my god! And so, why? You know, while there's no direct um, link to Mormonism, it certainly probably inspired him. Like how successful Joseph Smith had been. He called himself Koresh. You know, as we know, our first thing that a cult leader does is give themselves a new name or a title. And Koresh is the Hebrew transliteration of Cyrus. Um, and so that's basically where the name Koreshans come from. Um, it fits in with kind of the Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, Jehovah's Witnesses, because they were all sort of millennialist movements that believed that Christ would come back, start a kingdom on earth, and reign for a thousand years, like it is some people interpret revelations. So in these things, as in this one, the prophets aren't messiahs, but they are sort of divine interpreters. Um, who like interpret prophecy and signs and um, are sort of religious leaders, but not messiahs. He mm-hmm. believed, and so Teed's followers believed that he would redeem them after a big event where he would translate into a higher form and that they would be the chosen people. 
He believed he was the last in a line of prophets or seed men, which I just love that. I don't know where that comes from, but it's like, yeah, they're seed men. All right. Including um, Adam, Enoch, Noah, Moses, Abraham, and Jesus. Mm -hmm. Uh, As the seventh prophet in this line, Teed said he was the most special and evolved. (laughs) So he would usher in the age of Koreshanity following Judaism, uh, Abraham, and Christianity, Jesus. So, you know, I mean, let's just go out on a limb and say this guy had a healthy ego. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, at this point, he has no followers. Right. He has no money. But he has declared himself more advanced than Jesus. But to be fair, all <laughs> Jesus did was turn water into wine. This dude turned lead into gold. I mean, so, why, water into wine is that's a that's a marketable skill. It <laughs> so is. is lead into gold. Seen what the that's value true. of gold is lately? <laughs> well, that's true. Although he apparently only ever did it the once uh, when no one could see. Yeah, where no one could see with maybe, no proof. Maybe his maybe his alchemy powers were shy, kind of like you know some people have like pee shyness, like they can't pee. Well, if they think people hear them. Pee shyness is, it's interesting you should mention that. That's, we're not going to go directly there, but we're going to be pee adjacents very soon. Fantastic. Um, (laughs) So there's a great line. There was a great line in this book, which I wrote down verbatim, which said, there were many people in the late 19th century America who believed they were prophets. And like most of them, Teed was spectacularly unsuccessful. (laughs) I mean, it's probably true of all people who believe they're prophets, no matter when there are. Most of them are spectacularly unsuccessful. But, of course, the fact that he was unsuccessful and that he had trouble finding believers was evidence to him that he's right, you know, because he's, you know, is persecuting and his beliefs are being not taken seriously. Um, The author... That's just confirmation bias. Yeah, exactly. So the author basically says he was probably insane and definitely narcissistic, but that the followers don't seem to have been crazy. And she also drew some interesting comparisons between um, David Koresh and Teed because Koresh, because David Koresh also believed he was the prophet Cyrus. Cyrus. So there were all, you know, but there were obviously big differences too. Not least of which, Teed believed celibacy. Uh, he was a big proponent of celibacy, supposedly. Um, he believed that, that celibacy gave women control over their own bodies and was the secret of immortality for both genders. He believed that followers should focus their love on him and that would enable them to become closer to God. I just have to read this as it is. And it's just such a weird twist on, I mean, like I feel like what I just said is very common and we see that all the time, but then you get this completely insane wrinkle on it. So once enough of his followers did this he believed that their energy would cause an electromagnetic explosion in his brain that would consume his pineal gland responsible for sexual potency. This would enable him to pass into his chosen woman and become both male and female, a mother and father God. Something similar would then happen to all his followers and they would be immortal. So he basically believed that, and I kind of love this, that when he became sort of a god or messiah or transmogrified into a higher being, that he would be going from male to female. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Although I don't understand. He also believed it would go the other way, though, which is weird. He had this unique version of the hollow earth theory, and they had all these kooky diagrams and spheres um, so in 1880, when he's, he's kind of got his theology pretty, pretty well set, he goes broke again 
and his parents invite him back home to run there. They just happen to own a little mop factory. So he has a small following at this point, including his sister, Emma, and he starts his first commune around the mop factory. He produced a newspaper while his followers, mostly women, several who'd left their husbands, um, which would lead to trouble later on, made the mops. Uh, the mop factory tanked <laughs> because, you know, I don't know. People didn't need as many mops as they were making. And they moved. That's weird that you would think that, like, there weren't, there wasn't a lot of competition. I know. I guess people were like, you made these mops so good, we don't need new ones. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe they just sucked at it. Maybe their mops were inferior. But so the, they moved and they go to New York City. And this is during the heyday of electrotherapy. Um, and, you know, we've all heard about how basically they would, you know, women would be taken in for various weird maladies and essentially given an orgasm. With oh. um, with electromagnetic attachments. Now, it's unclear whether he did that particular treatment, but he was certainly a big proponent of electrotherapy. And he starts practicing electrotherapy as part of his treatments in New York at the same time as he's there with his followers. Mm-hmm. And he starts treating this woman in Syracuse who's married. And she starts buying into what he's selling and giving him money. And so at this point she's paying him. So he got his sugar mama. Well, no. Oh, there's so many sugar mamas to come. So she gives him some money. The husband finds out about it and is like, what is happening here? Um, Eventually she realizes she's being duped and is like, I'm out. And she makes a public stink about it. And at this point, the New York times runs a front page above the fold Sunday story with the headline, Sure, he is the prophet Cyrus, a doctor obtaining money on the ground that he is a new messiah. Anton LaVey would have been so jealous of that press. Oh, my God. This guy, this guy's press makes Anton LaVey look like a like a, a beginner. Yes. And this was like the the like the the peak of muckraking. And so the quotes in this book from the newspapers are amazing. But so the D.A. was going to charge Teed with soliciting money under false pretenses Teed, of course, is like super, um, you know, affronted and pissed off by this and says he's a prophet. Like he's not a grifter. He is the prophet Cyrus and he can prove it. Um, so newspapers dig into his background, some, um, both Syracuse newspaper and New York Times, and they find this woman that he supposedly eloped with, you know, they're just sort of like, because they would print gossip, right? So, you know, who knows whether he had an affair with this woman or not. But she was one of his followers and had been married before. And this is like, you know, women getting divorced wasn't that much of a common thing, really, before this period. And so um, women leaving their husbands was enough for hysterical coverage. So meanwhile, he doesn't help his case because he's continuing to give lectures about his crazy immortality beliefs. Um So his reputation is kind of in tatters at this point, as it will be many times during this story. The amazing thing about Cyrus Teed is that he basically would be loved for a while, hated for a while, loved slash hated for a while. And I mean, like, you got to give it to him. He never gave up. Um, So this is actually when he gets a sugar mama. So his little community disperses. They move into different parts of New York. Uh, and he ends up being a kept man by this rich lady. 
she and her friends uh, invite him to live at her place at East 67th and the Boulevard, which is now Broadway, to work on a book. And she gives him a generous weekly allowance. Uh, but apparently they did not turn out to be the true believers that he hoped. And he is writing letters to his old doctor friend and saying that they are upset that he won't sleep with them because <gasps> supposedly. Well, this- wait, where is his wife? Oh, she's back. She's back in. She's back home in Moravia or wherever with this okay. doctor friend who treats her. He has left I her. Bet, I bet he does. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, well, he's ma- happily married and they later come live with the Teeds. But anyway, after Delia dies. Uh, so she she gives a weekly allowance. Supposedly, this Mrs. Egley was her name, wanted Teed to have sexual intercourse through the urethra. <laughs> God. He writes a letter to Dr. Friend back home where he puzzles about the whole concept <laughs> and how it can't be impure. Then this Mrs. Egley finds a woman who is also a proponent of urethric sex and hatches a plan to put Teed in a house with her and pay for them to write a book on the topic. So he's like afraid to piss off his patron, but wants out of this situation. And is basically like this woman is a demon. Um, it's been 15 years at this point since his big vision. But he manages to get some money, like his doctor friend probably sent him some money again, and he leaves this patron and keeps giving lectures. At one of these lectures, he meets a woman from Chicago, and I just love this name, named Mrs. Thankful H. Hale. And Mrs. Thankful H. Hale is convening mental scientists for a conference in Chicago, and she offers to pay for him to come and present there. He, of course, is like, I will take any money that a woman will give me <laughs> to do anything I'm in. Um, so he travels to Chicago and this is where he kind of gets his big break on his way to having his cult. The conference was at the church of the redeemer, which side note had a candy factory in the basement. So while you're imagining all these crazy shenanigans that went on with these mental science professionals of the day who were fighting with each other like cats and dogs and pretending to heal people or thinking they actually could heal people and not being able to. There's candy being made in the basement of the place where this is happening. So Teed was supposed to speak on Sunday at this Mental Science National Association. But on Friday, two days after they met him, he's elected president. Of their organization, which was something that he had always wanted. Like he had always thought if he could find an association that he could piggyback on, that he could use it for respectability and to get more followers. Right. So this is like his dream come true. Finally. So mental science was in a big crisis. One of the most interesting things about this book is like sort of all the other little side movements and fringe things that it that it explores and so one of them was one of the things that was pretty recent at this point was christian science so mary baker eddy had founded christian science seven years ago believing that you could cure by thought and um (laughs) so some people some so, so there was a lot of debate about whether or not this was real or you know like i mean as we know mental science is seems like it's just getting somewhere now really so like in this day it was it was um very primitive to say the least so he gets elected he um 
he gives this big speech and and starts developing kind of a reputation in Chicago. He moves to Chicago almost immediately and founds a church, a society, and a press. Um, all things that the Christian science leader also did, by the way. So we can say he was sort of looking at what worked for other people. Um, the he His school was called the World's College of Life, but also the school of Koresh. At the opening ceremony is the first time he uses the word Koresh in public, and no one there knew what it meant. Um, like a newspaper reporter was like, we don't know. It's just, it's not English, but we don't know what it means. Um, so he doesn't unveil the fact publicly that he's Cyrus in, uh, until a story a few months later in the Chicago Tribune, uh, where he gives an exclusive two hour long interview to the reporter who, and I quote, as part of this wrote, he can talk more to the square inch than a book agent. So he starts picking up followers. Right. You know, I mean, he's a colorful figure in Chicago and he's more than happy to talk to the press. So he starts gathering followers, but he also starts making enemies again, as he do. Like the guy whose place he took as president, who had been one of his early supporters, decided that he basically was not somebody he wanted to be associated with. But it's too late by that point. So he is trying to do this sort of mental healing Sort of like Christian science, but he's tying it more to the Koresh, to his beliefs, you know, mm. but it's really it's sort of the same thing. Um, so this, this woman brings him to see her husband and the husband dies. And the Chicago Daily Tribune runs a story about it with the headline, a Koreshian fatality, mental healing fails to cure a case of bronco pneumonia. They called the death suspicious and ran this hideous sketch of Teed, um, even though they had kind of been fans of his up to this point. So he ends up uh, charged with practicing medicine without a license because he never bothered to get licensed in Chicago, in Illinois. And they schedule a coroner's inquest, which was like a trial by, by the way it's described. He was found guilty by a jury, but there really were not very many um, sanctions that they could do. So they actually, the jury recommended like increasing the penalties but so he's taken to the courthouse but a correction woman follower pays his $300 bond and so he is gone that's the last time that he's known to have practiced medicine formally but it was uh he and his burgeoning flock decide this was great exposure for us <laughs> you know like we're gonna get even more um we're even gonna get even more followers and they were sort of right at this point, as you might remember, the angel had promised him that he would meet his equal on earth, his his female equal. And he finally does. Um, her name is Mrs. Annie Ordway. She is, of course, married to someone else. He gave her a new name almost immediately, Victoria Gracia, and a title, the preeminent of the society arch triumphant or arc triumphant. They expand uh, the corrections like start expanding. And so they start to run out of money again. They get another benefactor and they set up a communal home at college place. Uh, according to their internal accounts of this period, everything was pretty calm and pious and celibate, but the Chicago evening journal was like publishing all sorts of gossip and insinuation that things were not chased and that there was a lot of infighting. They found all these disgruntled ex-husbands, um, because, you know, he believed that 
women and men should be equal, that was a very appealing concept to a lot of women. And so they were, you know, a lot of women were more than happy to like be in a place where they could be treated that way. So basically, like, there's no hard proof that he was a philanderer, but there were lots of accusations. And this author of this book clearly, like, is trying to be very neutral on the subject, but it seems pretty clear that he was not celibate, even though he was telling everyone else to be. I mean, you and I know this from looking at every other cult. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, they're never celibate. No. Um, Anyone who recommends celibacy is not celibate. Women and women who left the group often said he made advances on them or other or they saw him make advances on other women. So, you know, that's good enough for me. So salacious stories continue in the newspapers and he goes out to San Francisco where he's got a following thanks to a new disciple. I love these people's names. Professor Royal O. Spear. <laughs> they had a big uh, communal home in the Castro. What's now the Castro district that they called Ecclesia. Mm-hmm. And things are going really well for the Koreshans at this point. They're continuing to pick up like big money followers. Some of these are women who, um, you know, got divorced or whose husbands have died and they have means to give it to and, and And one thing at some point during the Koreshans, you, you get to the point where people had to sign over their possessions and stuff, but you're not, we're not quite there yet. So in San Francisco, there's yet more claims that he's seducing women and that he had approached the uh, Royal O. Spears' wife. And so Royal O. Spears' like, we're out. We're not going to give you any more money. Uh, at some point in here, he also starts referring to time as A.K. after Koresh instead of A.D. Oh, my God. <laughs> the years after his birth. And that's how Koresh ends Mark Time from then on. So they have 60 people living in Chicago with more on the way from San Francisco at this point. And the house in Chicago is only big enough for 30. (laughs) So uh, once the people arrived from uh, San Francisco, they had 110 corrections and 83 of them were women, which is a lot, (laughs) obviously. So at this point, the World's Fair, the Chicago World's Fair is starting to be constructed and planned. Um, He tells his followers A new era is coming. The World's Fair is going to be the battleground. You know, like the White City represents Babylon, and that's what he's prophesied to overcome. Uh, He would need to die probably at the hands of a mob. He also claimed credit for the idea that the White City was his vision made real. Um, You know, sorry, architects. So they at this point they have these giant they start having giant birthday celebrations for Teed and Victoria. There's also a little bit of this guy that reminds me of our Nexium friend. Um Of course. Whose trial just got delayed until March, by the way. So disappointing. Oh, did it? it I didn't even catch that. Oh, it did. And uh the judge yelled at the defense attorneys and called one of them a three year old. <laughs> they established these customs of having um a lunar festival around her birthday and a solar festival around his birthday. So uh, Teed goes walking around the world's fair. Um, and I guess because his battle for earth didn't pan out, he sees the need to build his own city. And he's looking at all the other sorts of groups that he has idolized. And he thinks, Oh, well we need to be isolated, right? We need an isolated place where we can have our utopia and build our own city. 
So he meets this guy on a train because he's constantly traveling, trying to spread the word about we live inside and uh, Christianity and recruit new people and new people to fund his enterprises. And so he meets this guy on a train who has land for sale in Florida. And that ultimately takes the Christians to their final home of Estero, Florida, which is near what's now Fort Myers. So Southwest Florida in 1882 not the easiest place to live. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's broiling hot. There's not much shade. There's mosquitoes everywhere. There's wild hogs and all other kind of wildlife. Uh, there's soil that's not easy to grow stuff in. Like, there's a reason why they were able to find land there relatively cheaply. Although, partly, it's because they conned a dude out of it. So they go down to Florida. He goes down there with a few people and he's like, this looks great. They meet this family and he promises this kid uh, or young man that he would always be taken care of, live on the property and that they would educate him and teach him and sort of like sell him on correction stuff. So it takes 15 years to build the settlement as it was to the level of when they died. And at first it is very difficult. So they camped for months and months and cleared the ground. It took years even t- before they could bring the pe- most of the people from Chicago there. So it's like a few people who are willing to basically like cover themselves in cheesecloth to keep out mosquitoes and live in terrible conditions. Um, in 1884, four months after they got this land, the, Chica- the Chicago Herald runs its first story about Teed's plans for a utopia in Florida. They had... P- publish things that it would house like 10, 8 million people and cost 200 million to construct. And remember, this is in the 1880s. He took issue with that because he said that it would actually house 10 million people and that it would somehow be built without money. (laughs) I don't know. And so, and he also claimed that it would cover 36 square miles and the streets would be 400 feet wide. 400 feet wide. 400 feet wide boulevard, grand boulevards, like a heavenly city on earth. I wonder where he came up with that number. Uh, Out of his urethra. (laughs) 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 So he's touring the East Coast and the Koreshans are still recruiting people in Chicago. They are telling people, if you want to move down to Florida and help us build this grand city, you know, you basically have a job and a home. And they're building this as paradise, even though it is a total shithole at this point, right? But at the eventually, after they built, 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 um, they had a dining hall with female dorms. They had cabins for the men. They had a place for the children to live. Um, Teed and Victoria lived in the founder's house. There also was this place called, which I love the idea of this, and I, I really think we should have one of these for the Crone Coven. It was mm-hmm. called the Planetary Court, and it was a Victorian-style house, and the Planetary Court housed the seven women who were also referred to that, who either ran daily affairs or were given an honorary title as if they ran daily affairs. It's unclear. But, like, we could have a planetary court for the Crone Coven. I mean, <laughs> technically, we could do anything we want. <laughs> uh, they also had a bakery, a general store, a schoolhouse, a laundry, barns, a small zoo. What is it with cults and zoos? Sawmill, oh, no. printing house, boat and concrete works, gardens for growing food, and art hall for orchestra and band and Sunday worship. 
So Whenever they, I hear that a cult has a zoo, it makes me think of Michael Jackson. Which makes me wonder. <laughs> which makes me wonder if he was in a cult. Uh, you know, ooh, the he could have been in a cult. He should have been in a cult. Maybe it would have yeah. been. Maybe it would have turned things around. You know, oh, Michael Jackson. We could. There's so much to talk about there, but. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so they were still building when T died. Although we've got a little bit to go before we get there, but this was going to be called the Guiding Star City. And so uh, this was just like the very beginnings of it still, 15 years in. So the guy who they had convinced to let them live on this property, which would eventually become very valuable, obviously, because Florida, you know, like once it's settled, becomes pretty attractive real estate. Mm -hmm. He sues them, saying that they tricked him into giving this to him. And up until this point, the local community had pretty much liked having them as neighbors, right? They really didn't have any complaints. But now they're like, mm, you know, we don't like you coming in here and conning this guy. And he's like, they claim they would educate me and they're not. Like, they tricked me. And the the Koreshans are like, look, when he joined us, he, you know, agreed to give up everything he had. But they didn't have a signed contract from him to that effect. Um, so eventually the judge gave basically a third of it to the correction. So they still had a big chunk. And then Mm -hmm. this guy got another third and somebody else like his lawyer got another third and they sold theirs and moved away. Um, the conditions on the property are still not great at this point, even though it's being sold as a paradise. Uh, there's an expose that runs that talks about how deserters are malnourished and there are records that show that they were paying creditors the least possible. Teed and Victoria were eating high on the hog, however, and wearing silk and diamonds. The New York Times, I love this, reported that Teed had Koreshian wristwatches because people had to give over their stuff. He had their wristwatches melted down and made into a sword of gold that he gave Victoria for her birthday. <laughs> While basically they're eating like dirt, like everyone else is eating dirt. That's so weird. <laughs> I know, right? Oh God, that's just so weird. And also so ballsy. Like, you know, like, sorry, I've invited you to this hellish paradise. But yeah. I mean, I guess these people were true believers. So they're like starving, right? And they basically finally have a good citrus harvest in 1902 and 1903. And things start to turn around. So in 1903, after nine years that they've spent in Florida working on this, the rest of the people from Chicago come and the whole congregation is together. So there's about 200 of them uh, on Estero Island. They worked during the day and danced and hung out at night. Uh, There are rumors of polka, square dance, and cards. Uh, That sounds lit. (laughs) I mean, we are talking about like a swamp in the middle of nowhere. Polka and square dancing. Polka swamp. (laughs) Polka and square dancing. First of all, one of them is awful. Like imagine having both of them. Oh, Uh, oh, I know. And you know, the cards were terrible too. I bet someone was getting laid that night. Uh, (laughs) Hey, we have to stay celibate for immortality. Oh, well then that explains the polka and the square dancing. The children were educated and everyone, unlike a lot of the cults that we've talked about, everyone was encouraged to read the news. Um, They would read headlines from the newspaper at dinner and they had a big library filled with lots of stuff. Um, The kids went to school and learned regular subjects. Teed also taught the adults uh, anatomy, physiology, chemistry and things like that. They had a class on Esperanto, which seems so random. 
they incorporated their city, which li- was limited to their property, about of a hundred square miles. Um, the New Jerusalem, Guiding Star City, and so it was all starting to come together. The art hall was finished. Um, the settlement was clean and finally plentiful. Teed's son with Delia, who died at some point during all this. <laughs> like, I don't know if I missed that part of the book or it just didn't make it in. But at some point, Delia dies. Um, and so their son, Arthur, had become an artist. And he shows up and does an exhibit of his work in the art hall. The best building on the grounds, though, is still the planetary court. And... They get in. So this is where things start to go shit to shit again. Like, as I said, like things would go well and then he would, you know, he would rankle the wrong person and make new enemies. And during all this, he's still being sued in Chicago. Like um, a guy had sued him for basically breaking up a marriage. Although when it went to court, it turned out the guy had a mistress and all of this came out. And so it was sort of dismissed with no nobody won, so to speak. But like he was always being sued. And so they got embroiled in local politics, which we all know is a mistake (laughs) for cults. I think this prefigures the Rajneeshis, but there's definitely an element of Rajneeshishness here. So they were mostly going to vote for Democrats, but I guess there were some controversies about candidates and they end up founding their own political party, the progressive Liberty party. And so the citizens of Fort Myers and the Koreshans tensions start to escalate. Teed begins to travel with a bodyguard. There's a lot of hard feelings and it's all tied to these local political races. Um, so there is this, what seems by all accounts, super minor phone conversation a Koreshan calls up the local hotel owner and the wife answers. And, you know, the Koreshan is like, is such and such there who was supposed to be coming by train to visit? And she's like, no, there's no such and such here. And the Koreshan thinks that it sounds snotty. And so hangs up offended. The person shows up on the later train. She calls the Koreshan facility and i guess they're rude back and are like you lied to me and told me such and such wasn't there and this blows up into this huge beef locally where there's all these accounts that differ as to how uh how real housewives this conversation got seriously i'm like I what mean, is it going is it's but we just wait because i mean it's nothing like i mean i kept going back and looking at it like did i m- mistake like, miss yeah yeah because this is nothing um but so basically the there supposedly were some of the parties were in town visiting town and they were going to talk to each other and the marshal is there with one of the guys like the husband of the of the wife who was insulted t goes over and inserts himself into the conversation and so accounts really differ as to what happens next but uh basically he gets punched by the hotel husband and a brawl breaks out <laughs> fort myers press reported this as cowboy days level fighting the town marshal uh, steps forward and slaps the spectacles off of <laughs> Cyrus Teed. 40 or 50 men get involved in this chaos because there's a bunch of Koreshans in town, but there's more townspeople. Teed's bodyguard was a trained pugilist. I love the word pugilist. That is a good word. I don't and, think we use it 
And he shows up to intervene. He gets jumped on and beat down by a bunch of guys. Now, let me just remind you at this point, it is, uh, Whatever he, whatever his stupid AK 67, he was 67 years old. Uh, and he's in this brawl. So the guests that he was there in town to meet from Baltimore get off the train, including two young boys and the crowd assaults even these kids. Um, the marshal finally starts arresting, arresting people, including Teed and a bunch of corrections and they pay a bond to get out of jail. They refuse to come back to town for their court appearance. The local newspaper, of course, goes crazy. This is like the best thing that's ever happened. Um, they see this, uh, the Koreshian newspaper, which because, of course, they had their own. They had a big printing press, and he always had his own newspaper. They see this as the sign of Teed's coming martyrdom and his impending transformation. Uh, so meanwhile, he calls for the marshal and everyone who runs, who runs this town to be swept out to pay for his glasses. <laughs> and then he, which seems, which that seems reasonable, but then he adds on top of that, he's going to get President Roosevelt to investigate this. It's a very, it's a very Trumpian, right? I'm going to get, I'm going to get some of my best men on this. So the street fight was the beginning of the end for these people. Uh, it really, uh, he really never recovered fully. He goes to his beach house, uh, four miles away from the commune, which is called La Perita, which there's disagreements about what it actually means, to write a novel. And he writes this novel. Yo, what is it with cult leaders becoming writers oh, and authors? This all one the is time? so, it's, it, it's science fiction. It's, of course, it's always science fiction. It's always science fiction. <laughs> it's called The Great Red Dragon or The Flaming Devil of the Orient. So you can imagine what we're talking about here. It's an apocalyptic story in which Japanese and Chinese forces invade the U.S. and bring about Armageddon. Oh, my God. Racist much? Uh, yeah. And it was <laughs> very similar to the way he described the end of the world to his followers, the action in it, even though it was supposedly a novel. And he used like a pseudonym for writing it for whatever reason. So he starts traveling. Well, you know, <laughs> I mean, he has that as you do. pristine reputation to protect. Exactly. Um, so after he, so after he finishes his novel, he travels again. He, um, eventually though goes back to, back home to Estero to convalesce. And on the more on finally after a while of being sick, on the morning of December twenty second, he asks for a teaspoon of salt, and he says every sacrifice should be seasoned with salt. It is thus partly purified. He wets his fingers, touched the salt, and placed it on his tongue three times, and he dies about an hour later. Now, (laughs) Fort Myers from the salt. No. From, like, just his insides rotting. Like, no one's oh. real. It's not real clear what he died from. But Fantastic. so the, But remember, his followers believe he's going to be resurrected. And there right. is some source family. Um, there's some source family kind of stuff getting ready to happen, but much more extreme. So two Fort Myers doctors come out and say that he is, I love this too, quite extinct. <laughs> so this guy's dead, basically. Like, he is dead. You have called us out here. We can confirm it. The followers, of course, including like whatever doctors they had living there, believe that he was just in suspended animation because he's going to transform. So they, Victoria was actually in DC, like lobbying and lecturing. So they send her a telegram animation suspended. Can you come? 
three days later on Christmas Day, there's a gruesome picture in this book. Uh, Christmas Day, 1908, his body is completely black and distended. It is laying in a zinc bathtub that they had prepared just for him, where it's been for the three days while they're waiting. They stood vigil over the body for five days. Um, They paraded little children past this corpse, including all the members of the congregation, uh, because one of the guys who was charged with among the 20 men who were to build a tomb, just in case, on the beach, uh, thought he saw, what he saw was basically a blister on his arm, and he decided that what it actually looked like was a baby, a, a new arm growing out of the old arm. And what? so they parade everyone past to look at, it's the beginning of the, tra- of the transformation. This is disgusting. It is disgusting. This picture is one of the grossest things I've ever seen, and it's in black and white. There's a picture. I need to see that picture. But wait, so have you ever, have you ever seen Party Monster? Oh, no. I've seen the other one, though. I'm familiar with the case. Okay, so the bathtub. I, yeah. Right. So I, this is the, that's exactly what I was thinking about the whole time because I read the book years and years and years yeah. before it became an option. So the book was initially called Disco Bloodbath. Uh-huh. And I read the book and, you know, they are super high out of their fucking minds yeah. in that book. And that's the first thing I just thought of because it's like, how, how out of your mind, right. not sober, do you have to be to think that you see a baby arm growing out of a dead body in a bathtub? Exactly. Like, so there's all these journals and stuff of, of the progression of the body. And, and they admit, like, oh, he's getting gross, but then they'll seize on anything that's like a natural right. thing. So basically, I guess somebody in town finds out. I've got to stop saying the word basically so much. I only do that on this Sorry. podcast. Um, but they, uh, like the health officials showed up and uh-huh. they're like, you got to bury this disgusting. Wait, can corpse. you send me the picture? I, the I picture. will. I'll, I'll have to, I'll have to, uh, take a picture with my phone and, and send it to you. Cause I think it's probably not on the internet. Although you could look oh. Cyrus T dead body it might be. Um, go ahead. I'm going to look while you're saying that. Cyrus. <laughs> I mean, I just love this idea of this. And apparently spirits were very high. And you know it had to stink to high heaven. And this is their Christmas day. Um, And so they believe, like, he's going to transform still. Um, But they have to bury him. So they have built this tomb. um, And they put a note inside the tomb when they buried him. After the health officials made them. And And the note said, in compliance with the law... And only for such reason, the body of Cyrus R. Teed is placed in this stone vault. We, the disciples of Koresh, shepherd, stone of Israel, know that this sepulcher cannot hold this body, for he will overcome death, and in his immortal body, body will arise triumphant from the tomb. Spoiler alert, <laughs> he did not. <laughs> he was dead. And uh, his tomb was there on Fort Myers Beach until a hurricane destroyed it in 1921. So the remaining believers hang in for a little while. They come up, out, up with new theories like, well, he never said the transformation would be quick, right? Like, we just have to hang in there. But many people started to leave. The last person who became a recruit to the, to the Koreshian cause actually... But David Koresh? <laughs> no. But it is really so. This woman shows up in 1940 on a boat, 
And her name is Hedwig Michelle, and she's a Jewish refugee from the Nazis who had read one of his publications in Germany. Um, ah. And so she shows up. She believes in this hollow earth bullshit. Um, she shows up and, you know, like in 1948, the New Yorker comes out to write a story and there's only 12 Koreshans left. Um, most of them elderly. Teed's sister, Emma, was still there. Michelle brokers a deal basically with the state to give them 300 acres of land along with Koreshan effects and archives so the state can make a historic site once they pass Wait, on. Hold on. I'm totally like going to interrupt you for a second. No, but go did ahead. You know- I, if I'd missed you saying this, I'm so sorry. Did you know that Koresh is the Hebrew word for Cyrus? Yeah, that's why he called himself that. That's oh. yes. It's did, the, did, did you say? Did you say that? I missed at it. the very beginning. But sorry, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I'm a little. My brain's a little. I know. Okay. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um. Yeah. So they. So they basically they made a deal that they could live there until they died, and then it would eventually become a park. And it is like there's a state <laughs> historic site. And you can go visit the graves of the Koreshans that were buried there and the historic site and monument. Uh, 1974 was when the last original Koreshan died, although she no longer believed in the hollow earth because the moon landing convinced her that that was wrong. And Michelle died in 1981. So they still have this giant monument. There's all this information about them, which this woman used to write this Really, it's a very interesting book. I really recommend it. There's so much more crazy shit that I didn't have time to get into because I would basically just be reading. It'd be an audio book. Um, yeah. but like, and it, like you should be paid properly to do that. Yes. Read an episode, yeah. <laughs> and it's so, but it's also, it's so well written. You know how sometimes you get a book, especially nonfiction on things like cults, and some of them are just very disappointingly written. They're just really yeah. just boring or dry. And this is the opposite of that. Like, it's really well done. So I, I recommend it. It's, again, it's the allure of immortality. But So that is Cyrus Teed, crazy celibate um, sex lord uh, who believe we live inside the wow. earth. <laughs> I mean, crazy, and here, right? And here I thought I had problems. <laughs> I mean, crazy, right? Like, the fact that this went on for so long, it was covered yeah. so much, and it's like, to- but it's totally obscure now. Well, because there's just so much out there. Yeah, there's just so much out there. But That's insane, though. I mean, there's a good story. Th- there is one, um, I mean, like, one side note that I left out that I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, but the Fruitarians, which were another weirdo group that during this period... One the woman that claimed that she was um the princess and then they sort of like got a foothold in England, they tried to like come and take over like some of like in Florida. So it was almost like a cult war? Almost. And like Teed was like, get out of here. Oh my God, <laughs> and they left and went to England. Like there's just there's so much. Like uh yeah, and he tried to take over another he wanted to steal the money. He kept trying to merge with other like sort of religious factions that were more well off so he could get their money. This guy was basically like the Caesar of cults. Like the how to he was like the how to win friends and influence people of con like classic con man is kind of how I, I have to view him. But but with this weird like faux science like on top of it, yeah. I mean, I was fast. I mean, I I enjoy it. I enjoyed this one. That was a, a very uh, bizarre tale and journey <laughs> that you took us on, and I appreciate it because I need something like that right now. I know you so do. For, <laughs> so for everybody listening, make sure you know you can always drop us a line 
on our website, cultfavespodcast.com, or hit us up on email, cultfaves, I can't speak, cultfavespodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at cultfaves, and on Patreon at cultfaves. Tell us if you want us to talk about something or have yeah, crazy things I you come across. I love when people email us stuff that's like, hey, I heard about this thing. Like, I am into that. Yeah. But don't be like, I want to be on your podcast to talk about it. Like, Because that's... <laughs> we haven't had one of those in a couple of weeks, which is good. But it's like, ch- cool your jets. Um, or as always, if you know anyone or yeah. yourself or have previous experience with a cult, we heard from somebody, by the way, on Twitter who lives in the same community with the wine cult. <gasps> oh, my God. Yeah. So good. <laughs> Has she had their wine? That's what oh, I, I forgot. I should have asked. I don't even think I remember. I think I was on deadline, and it's like, oh, cool. Like, it's back to work. It's been a weird few weeks. <laughs> I feel like it has. it's just been a weird few weeks. Yes. Thank you so. for hanging in there with us. We appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, seriously. Um, and until then, we'll see you guys. Talk to you guys next week. See